0: Genesis chapter number 15. Before you turn there, though, if you need a worship guide, we'd like to put one in your hand. Please raise your hand, and one of these ushers will give you a worship guide. And while they're doing that, I want to tell you a story about my brother. Uh, When I was uh, four or five years old, I had a younger brother, and we were really close. We played outside a lot, and we had a favorite toy. One year for Christmas, My parents bought us each these metal Tonka trucks. These are big metal trucks. I think they still have them, but now they're plastic. Ours were, these were virtually indestructible. I'm pretty sure they could survive a direct nuclear blast and still be operable. These things were huge. And I had one that had a plow in the front. And I remember many hours playing in the dirt with that. How many of you, you know what I'm talking about? You've seen those before. Yes, yes. Okay, good. And then my brother had the dump truck. And I have to admit there was a little bit of envy in my heart that he had the dump truck and not me, but it was God's will apparently. And so uh, he had the dump truck, and one day my brother, Adam, you know, he he kind of was a little bit of a daredevil, and he realized that he could actually sit in the back of that dump truck. He could kind of like wedge his hips in there and actually fit completely in the back of that, that dump truck. He's probably three years old at the time. And in our driveway, it was a dirt driveway, but the last little bit was cement. It went down maybe 50 feet, and then it hit a cement pad. So he got to the top of that hill on the driveway, the cement edge where it began. He turned that that dump truck backwards, and he was curled up inside the back of that dump truck. He had me push him off, which I was only so glad to do. And so I pushed him off. And he starts going down, and boy, he's got quite a ride going on. And he's going down there, and where the cement driveway hit the cement pad, it wasn't really smooth. It was kind of a sharp angle. And when the back tires of that Tonka truck hit the cement pad, the the bed of it, the dump bed, flipped open, and Adam went shooting out of it. And Adam landed on his face, right about here. In fact, we've got some family pictures where about a third of Adam's face is a scab. And if you've ever met Adam, you'd probably say it's an improvement. No, (laughs) you can tell him I said that. Uh, but, But, you know, Adam, he was obviously in a lot of pain and almost inconsolable. And, you know, mom did all the mom things to try to make him feel better. But Adam was really upset when he realized that he broke his Tonka truck. He went out there, and he saw that he busted the tires on it, and he was just out of control. He was just crying. And he's three or four years old. And just so upset. And, you know, as parents, you know, when your kids are in that state, you try to make them feel better. Let's <laughs> pretend that you and I are there right at that moment and see if you agree with me about what would happen. If you're there and you see Adam, and he's crying, and he's this three-year-old boy because his toy is broken. He broke his favorite truck. And you can say, hey, listen, Adam, I'll tell you what. We'll give you a new one. Or how about this? Adam, you don't know this, but your rich uncle died. And although you don't have that truck, you are a millionaire. He has given you $1 million. Now, if Adam was like your average three-year-old, that probably wouldn't really matter a whole lot. What he wants is his truck. And I tell you that story because today we're going to look at uh, an important truth. If you're a believer today, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a powerful thing. And much of what it is, is things that are down the road that God promises us. But when we look at it in today's light, in today's problems, a lot of times, it seems very small to us because we don't have the ability to see down the road. We're a lot like a little child in that what we have now is what matters. What we don't have now is what upsets us. But so many things that God says, he says, trust me and I'll show you that I'm faithful and that I'm true. This is not a new problem. This is how it's always been when God works with man. God often comes to us and says, trust me, believe me. And we choose whether to trust him or not. And God always comes through. We're going to look today at a man's life. Uh, The man is Abraham. I'll probably use the name Abram and Abraham interchangeable today. But Abraham was a great man, no matter how you look at it. Uh, The Jewish religion considers Abraham to be a great man. Even, even the Muslim religion considers Abraham to be a great man. And of course, the Christian faith, we know of Abraham being used of God and called of God to do great things. And, and you look at the fact that although religion looks at Abraham, even the world today, we recognize Abraham, you don't have to be religious to realize the impact that Abraham has had on our world. This simple fact alone, how many people do you know their name and know their life 4,000 years after they died? That's a pretty short list. Abraham was one of the greatest men to ever walk on this earth. And if you've never heard the story of Abraham or are unfamiliar with it, I want to give you a little bit of background, and then we'll get to chapter 15. In chapter number 12, Abram lives in a country called Ur of the Chaldees. If you can imagine a map of the Middle East, Ur would be on the far western end of that. It was a great city. And God comes to him and says, Abraham, I want you to leave your family, leave your city. And according to Hebrews 11, God says, and I'm not going to tell you where I'm going to take you. I just want you to leave. Now, to us, that's, that's big, but to Abraham, that was huge. That was enormous, what God was asking him to do. We're pretty individualistic in our society today, very individualistic. We are most concerned about personal rights and personal accomplishment. But in Bible days, it was a lot different. It was your clan, it was your family that mattered most. And God was saying to Abraham, I want you to leave your family I want you to leave your identity, your future, I want you to leave all of that, and I want you to start over. In those days, they cared more about their family's welfare than their own. They cared more about their family's accomplishment, and Abraham was ripped apart from his family and became a wanderer. God leads him to what would later become the promised land or the land of Canaan, the land that God would give to his people at that time, it was not just Abraham who lived there. There were many other nations that lived there. In fact, Abraham, he was very successful. He, he became very wealthy, but he found himself in the middle of a big war in that region. The Bible describes how that there were uh, these nations that had created these two alliances, and they were warring against each other. The one alliance attacked another and destroyed their capital cities, took many of their people hostage, and headed north about 200 miles. What just so happened that Abraham's nephew Lot was one of the people that was captured and taken away by the victorious armies. Abraham, the Bible says, had 300 servants who he had trained for war. So these are not professional soldiers. These are not people who were doing that with their life. These are people who were servants by day but had been trained to fight a little bit. Abraham organizes them, and they chase after the victorious army for 300 miles, I'm sorry, 200 miles. They surround them, and they win this great victory. Abraham rescues Lot, and Abraham receives even more wealth, and 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 we read in chapter 14 how he gives it to God. So you look at Abraham right now, you would think that his life was going well. He had obeyed God. God had blessed him. He was a wealthy man. And now, to add to all of that, He had just defeated the victorious armies. He beat up the big kid on the block, if you will. Abraham was at a new level of renown. You would think that Abraham, the next chapter, chapter 15, would be this Abraham praising God and excited about all that God's doing. But what you'll find as we read this chapter is that there's a note of melancholy in Abraham's conversation with God. Genesis chapter 15, verse number 1. After these things, the word of the Lord, by the way, the Bible's saying after these things, he's saying this is very much connected to the battle that takes place in chapter 14. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision saying, fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord, what wilt thou give me? Seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eleazar of Damascus. This is what Abram's saying. He's saying, God, what does it matter What you have done for me and what you've given me, because I have no heir, I have success but no successor. You see, God had promised Abraham way back in the beginning. He had covenanted with Abraham some very specific things. He promised Abraham that he would be a great nation. He promised, and by the way, to be a great nation, you have to have children. That's kind of how it works. He said, "Not only that, I will bless people who bless you, Abraham." And also, I will curse people who curse you. Through you, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. God made some big, audacious promises to Abraham. But that was years ago, decades ago. And now here's Abraham. He has seen success, but he hasn't seen the promises. He has no son. He doesn't see him becoming this great nation. And so as he and God have this conversation, verse number three, we continue the story. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. So Abraham saying, Hey, listen, I've got this servant. Is he the one you're talking about? And God says, No, that's not the one I'm talking about. I'm going to give you your own biological son. And verse number five, and he brought him forth abroad and said, look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, so shall thy seed be. And he, Abraham, believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. I want you, I want to be clear in this passage. As we look at the, the the verbs here, the Bible is clear that this is not when Abram first heard the gospel, when Abram began became a believer in the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. That took place in chapter number 12. This is a continuing word. It's saying Abraham continued that faith that started chapters ago and believed God. And that was what was added to his record, not his good works. So we begin in verse number seven, and God begins to reiterate the promises that he's going to give Abraham. He says, I will do all of these things for you. And then verse number eight, Abraham asked a question that I think he would live to regret. In verse number eight, he says, and he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? He's saying, God, you've made these promises. You've made them before. How do I know that you're going to come through? How do I know that you're faithful? How do I know that you are trustworthy? how do I know that you're going to do everything that you said you would do? I mean, I followed you, and yes, you've given me these great blessings, but I want something more than just this kind of success. You promised me a kind of blessing that would impact the world. And where is that? And I want you to notice that God doesn't answer Abram. God's not obligated to answer anybody. But God tells Abraham to do something. He starts giving Abraham commands. Now, before we look at the commands that God gives Abram, I want you to notice in verse number 12 that although you and I don't know what's going on, whatever happens, that the Bible says, a great horror of darkness falls on Abram. This is describing in very strong terms that Abram is emotionally distraught. Whatever God's telling Abram to do scares Abraham. It horrifies Abraham Let's remind ourselves, this is a very brave man who a chapter before had no problem taking on a victorious alliance with 300 soldiers. This was not a man lacking in bravery, but what God has told him to do has horrified him. What has God told him to do? We'll read the verses. The Bible says in verse number 9, And he said unto him, God speaking to Abraham, Take me an heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, uh, and a young pigeon. And he, took, uh, uh, and he took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against another, but the birds he divided not. I can remember reading this as a kid, and I'm thinking, wow, I, I don't really know what's going on. I'm sure it's good. I'm sure it's in the Bible for a reason, and, but I'll move on. But come to find out there's something very important going on. Today, if we want to make a legal agreement, we draw up contracts, right? Uh, For example, about a year ago, uh, we purchased our home. And when we did, there was a lot of paperwork. In fact, there was, it broke the table. There was so much paperwork. And we had these stacks and stacks of paper. And all of these papers basically it was this way. You as the buyer who want to buy the house, you're promising to do all of these things. And you as the seller, the person selling the house, you are promising to do all of those things. And if you, the buyer, fail to do what you promised to do, these are the things that are going to happen. And if you as the seller fail to do the things you promised to do, these are the things that are going to happen. That's kind of how we work today. In the Bible days, they had the same concept, but they took it to a whole new level. They didn't call those things contracts. They called them covenants. And you didn't write or sign a covenant. You cut a covenant. In fact, the word covenant means to cut. And what's being described here is, let's remind ourselves, Abraham says, God, how do I know you're going to do all these things? And God says, okay, Abraham, I'm going to give you a contract. Let's make a covenant right now. What's being described here, we read in history, as this was something fairly commonplace back in the Bible days. It would usually take place between a stronger party and a weaker party. So if you can imagine maybe two enemy nations, and you have the stronger nation and the weaker nation. The stronger nation would be able to dictate the terms or most of the terms of this covenant. And what would happen, there would be a ceremony. This ceremony was called the ceremony of the pieces. And that's what's described right here. What would happen is they'd take a series of animals and they'd usually be on a small hill. You'd take the largest animal, which in this case is a heifer. And you'd go to a place on that hill and you would kill that animal. You would cut this animal in half. You can imagine how gory this is and how visceral this is as you, do, as you butcher this animal and you take one half of the carcass and put it on one side and the other half of the carcass and throw it on the other side. As you can imagine, there's all kinds of blood and carnage that would be there and begin to flow down the hill. Then you go and you get the next largest animal, maybe a lamb, and you'd butcher that animal and cut it in half and throw half the carcass there and half the carcass there, and you continue down. These animals and go down the hill, and by the time you were done, there'd be a path of blood from the top that would be flowing down this trail of blood. It was the kind of thing that you would not forget it 's the kind of thing that was meant to stir you to the place that you would never re, never uh, forget what had happened at that place at that point the usually the stronger party, the stronger nation would then stand at the foot of that hill, they would take off their shoes, and with barefoot they'd walk through that warm blood and that carnage, with carcasses on each side, and walk up that hill saying the terms of the covenant. So the, the stronger nation might say things, we agree not to invade you, we agree to protect you from outside invaders, whatever else they decide that they'll do. They would get to the top of it, And their representative then would have blood all over his feet and maybe even up his legs. And he would say, if we break our covenant, this is how we'll pay for it. You may do what was done to these animals to us. We are pledging our lives that we'll stand on this. Then the weaker party would stand at the bottom. They would take their shoes off and they'd walk through that trail of blood Obviously, the terms would be a little bit different for them. Many times they would agree to pay tribute and to send slaves and to send their goods to the stronger nation. They would agree that they would be their allies if they were ever attacked. And all these things, and they'd walk through it, and they'd say, if we ever break our covenant, let this be done to us. Let, we are pledging our lives that we will stand by our word. Let's go back to Abraham. Abraham and God having this conversation. Abraham saying to God, how do I know that you're going to be a God of your word? God says, I'll tell you what, let's shake on it. Let's make a covenant about it. And God tells Abraham to start building this trail of blood, to begin this ceremony of the pieces, to where Abraham and God were going to enter a contract. This no doubt took hours to do. As Abraham is slaughtering these animals and preparing it, can you imagine as Abraham is thinking, what did I just do? I asked God if he would do everything he said, and what God is wanting to do is to enter a covenant with me where God's going to walk through, and he's saying, Abraham, I will be faithful to you. I will do everything I've promised to you. You can count on it, and if I don't, I will pay with my life. But... There's going to be a part where Abraham has to walk through that. And when Abraham walks through it, he's going to have to say something along the lines of, God, I as Abraham, I as the weaker party, I agree to your terms. I will obey you. I will follow you. Your law, I will do every bit of it. I will never fail you. And if I do, you can do this to me. I will promise this with my life. Is it any wonder why Abram is horrified? Why Abraham is shaken to his core as he is about to enter a contract with God. We read here in verse number uh, 12, And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram and Loa, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs. And God specifies his promise. God is saying, these are the things I promise you. And he gets very specific. He even gives time periods for these things. Verse number 17. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark. Behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. What happens here is God shows Abraham in the form of smoke. Later on, by the way, we, we call this a pillar of cloud that would lead Abraham's people. God, as this smoke, walks through that, those pieces. He pledges, he says, I will do what you've told me to do. I promise you, as God, I will, oh, I will keep my word. But before Abraham can walk up there, and before Abraham can say, I promise to obey all your commands, God, I promise to always obey you, I'll never be unfaithful to you, Before he can do that, what happens? This burning lamp, this fire, walks through there for Abraham. This is what God's doing. God's saying, Abraham, I will pay the price if I'm ever unfaithful to you. And Abraham, you're supposed to walk up there right now. Abraham, you're supposed to say, you'll pay the price if you ever fail me. But Abraham, I know you, and I know humanity. You are a sinner at heart, just like all humans are. You cannot live up to it. And so Abraham, step aside. I'm going to walk through for you. God walked alone. And it's a good thing, because we read in the next chapter, in the following chapter, after that, it didn't take long for Abraham to begin failing God. God never failed Abraham. God kept every promise. And by the way, God's never failed anybody. God's never failed you. God's never failed me. There's never been anyone that God has failed. He's always been faithful and true. God never failed Abraham. But the next chapter, Abraham begins to fail God royally. He doubted God's promises. He doubted that what God said would come true, and he takes matters in his own hands. And by the way, it wasn't just Abraham. It was Abraham's son Isaac that failed God, and, Abraham and his son Jacob who failed God, and Jacob's 12 sons failed God, and all the nation of Israel failed God. In fact, the first five books of the Bible, the predominant theme is how Abraham and his descendants failed God over and over and over, and God was faithful. God was true. God never failed them. Then the day came that Abraham had to pay the price. We have this covenant where Abraham was to walk and if he failed God at any point, Abraham was to pay the price, but God walked up that hill for Abraham. And we see in the Bible later, Jesus Christ, the son of God would come. He would live a perfect life. He would never sin, he deserved no kind of punishment. But Jesus, God, once again walked alone up a hill. This was a bloody hill as well. Not the blood of animals, not the blood of sacrifices, but the blood of Jesus Christ. And what we see on Calvary is God saying, Abraham, you have failed. Abraham's descendants have failed. All of mankind has failed me. But I walked alone that day, years ago, I said, I'll pay the price, and this is what your sins justly and rightly deserve. They deserve to be nailed to a tree. Your sins deserve to be tortured until the blood flows. Your sins deserve to be mocked and the crown beat on your head and the stripes on your back. You deserve to know what it's like to cry out in pain, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what your sin justly deserves. But God walked alone. He paid the price for you and for me. And let me say although this is not the primary focus this morning the most important thing this morning is this is that Jesus Christ paid the price for every sinner. He paid for your sin. I've met many people who they claim and they think their philosophy is that they're going to try to do things to impress God. That I'll be a good person and God will be impressed. I will be charitable I will serve others. I will go to church. I'll even do religious rituals, and I'll do enough of those that God will be impressed. Can I say this kindly? You must think very highly of yourself. Because Abram, Abraham, one of the greatest people to ever walk planet Earth, when he had that proposition of entering a covenant with God based on his merit, he was horrified. He was scared to death to say, my relationship with God is based on how good of a person I am. God, I'll walk through this. I'll obey you. I'll never be unfaithful to you. I'm Abraham. No, 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 no. That's not him at all. He saw it, and he was horrified. And the truth of the matter is, when you and I truly see our state before God, we truly see what our sins deserve, there's no better word for how our hearts should feel than horror horror. Standing before God without Jesus Christ, standing before God with all of our faults, it's a very horrifying thing. And I wanted to give you good news, though, that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, we have a God that walked that path for you. And today can be the day you know Jesus Christ is your Savior. But you know something? Abraham was already a believer when God did this. Now think about this. If God's going to take this great picture, God's going to walk alone and show the gospel. Wouldn't you think there are other places that could probably use it a little better and a little more than what Abraham could? Abraham was already a believer. Abraham had already left his family and followed God. He believed in the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. That was Abraham. Why did God take this Huge picture in this ceremony to show the gospel message. I mean, Abraham was in the same neck of the woods of Sodom and Gomorrah. Couldn't they have used the gospel message a little bit more? How about the people who were the nomads that traveled through that way? Couldn't they have used the gospel more? But God chose to give this wonderful picture of the gospel to Abraham for this reason it's because this covenant was not about teaching the gospel, but showing how to live in the gospel. See, it wasn't about saying, here are the facts about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's not what this is about. It was instead saying, here is how the gospel, Abraham, that you believed decades ago, how it affects your life today. It's interesting, isn't it? God preached the gospel to a believer. That's what's happening in this chapter. God is giving this very memorable, visceral image of the gospel to somebody who is already a believer Why is that? Why did God take the time to do that? Well, he did that because the same things we believe to be saved are the things that you and I need day in and day out. The same concepts that we are not adequate to enter covenant with God, but God in his mercy has given us grace, are the things that change how you live and how I live on a daily basis. I read a story of a man in the year 2007. This man walks into the Washington DC metro station he has an old beat up case he goes to one of the main walkways goes over to the corner he opens that case up and he pulls out a violin he begins to play that violin and they set up these hidden cameras to see what would happen it, it took 4 minutes till somebody finally threw a dollar bill in that case for him after 6 minutes A young guy with a cell phone leans against the wall and listens for a few minutes, and as soon as he's done checking his email, he takes off. After 10 minutes, there's this lady and her child, a little three-year-old, four-year-old boy, are walking through, and he's pulling out his mom's hand, Mommy, Mommy, let's listen. And she's busy. She kind of pulls him along. After 45 minutes, six people stop to listen, and he collects $32. $32. That person who played the violin is considered to be one of the best violin players in the entire world. His name is Joshua Bell. The violin he was playing was valued at $3.5 million. $3.5 million violin. He just two days earlier had played in Boston to a sold-out arena where people paid $100 or more a ticket to hear him play. The musical piece he was playing was a selection by Bach that's considered one of the most difficult pieces that can possibly be played. And as he is there, displaying this great talent, the whole world walks by and barely notices. And here we are, we get saved, and God saves us from hell. He gives us this great truth that he would die in our place. And if we're not careful, we restrict and confine salvation into something that happened in our past, as something that will help, ha- help us in the future by taking us to heaven, but really doesn't impact my day. I, uh, I've, I've been able to help some people with marriages before and collect a large library of marriage books. I read one, though, that shook my world. I read a lot of things on marriage, and boy, they'll talk about you know, communication and things you should do and procedures and, and all these great things that are important and matter. But the one that shook my world and changed my marriage was one that took the concepts of the gospel of Jesus Christ and applied them to our marriages by saying this, what if the point of marriage was not to make you happy but to bring glory to God. I never thought of it that way. To me, a good marriage is a marriage that makes me happier. To me, a good marriage is one where, hey, she meets my needs and I meet her needs. And, and you know, we have this, you know, we, we, we fill out these tests to see how compatible we are. And, and that helps in all these different things we do. But the truth of the matter is this, is the gospel of Jesus Christ changes not just our hearts, and not just our future. It changes our employment. It changes our marriage. It changes our home. It changes our church. Folks, that's why this is different than meeting at a club, uh, a a Lions Club or an Elks Club. It's because we have been changed by the fact that God walked alone for us, and it's changed everything about us. We, as we look at Abraham, we look at his people, his descendants, we see that this was a theme that continued on and on with Abraham and his descendants. We're going to look today at three different times that God, God looked at them and looked at their failures and said, but because I walked alone, everything's different. The first time we read about this is in uh, Exodus chapter number 33. If you'd please bring up my verse. For the first point is this, God walked alone so that we never have to walk alone. When Jesus walked up Calvary Hill and was rejected of God, it was for the point that you and I would never have to be rejected of God because of Christ. As a believer, we never have to be rejected of him. In Exodus 33, Israel has sinned. They've sinned royally. And this is what the Bible says. uh, We'll pick up halfway through the verse. God speaking, he says, For I will not go up in the midst of thee, for thou art a stiff-necked people, lest I consume thee in the way. Now this is interesting, God is saying, is demonstrating, this is what it would be like if I walked, if if I did not walk alone. If I walked for my covenant and you walked for your covenant, this is what it would be. It'd be that I am not going to be with you anymore, you've sinned. Think about that for a moment. What if that was what salvation was? That God's presence with us was based on our performance. We'd be struggling today, wouldn't we? When's the time we need God most? It's when we fail him. It's when we have blown it royally. And if those were the times that God walked away from us, we'd be a very hurting people. But folks, God walked alone, and that's why we have this next verse. And he, God said, "'My presence shall go with thee, "'and I will give thee rest.'" He's saying this is what it should be. It should be that because you have failed, I'm not going to go with you. You're on your own. But because of the fact I walked alone, I will go with you. And Israel failed God. They would grumble. grumble. They would complain. They would break the Ten Commandments as they were being written by the hand of God. But God was never unfaithful to them. God went with them every step of the way. And let me tell you something, that's all of our stories. That God has been faithful to us and we have failed him. We have blown it. We have taken his mercies lightly. We have taken his grace as a little thing. And we, we, we fail to do the things we should. We sin against him. But the fact he's with us today is not based on what you've done or what I've done. Boy, we've, the, the devil, he's, he's tricky. He wants us to believe that God's presence is based on our performance and when we fall, as we all do, he puts on that guilt, puts on that pressure, and we think, you know, I've blown it, the last place I need to go is church. Hey, I've blown it, the last thing I need to do is talk to God. God doesn't want to hear from me right now. Let me tell you, God wants to hear from you, not because you're a good person or a bad person, but because he walked alone. He said, I will pay the price for you. Your failures go on my record. The second thing we read from this and how Abraham's descendants would fail God is we learn that God walked alone out of his grace, not our merit. Deuteronomy chapter number 7 is our next passage. This is great. I love this. God's talking to his people. He's saying, this is why I've chosen you as my people. This goes all the way back to Abraham. Why did God pick Abraham and, and his descendants? He's saying this, for thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself. Above all the people that are on the face of the earth, you think, wow, Abraham's people must have been the smartest. They must have been this strong nation where God says they have potential. Let's see what God says, next passage. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any people, for ye were fewest of all people. I think there's another verse there, isn't there? But because the Lord loved you, because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, which the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand. Do you see that? He's saying, Israel, you're my people. You're a holy people. You're the people I'm going to use. And let me tell you why. It's not because you're strong. It's not because you're mighty. It's because I love you, and I made a covenant with you, and I will be your God. Not because of your merit, but because of who I am. Let's just rejoice in the fact for a moment right now that our standing with God right now is not based on our actions, but on his actions. It's his account. It's the price that he paid. It's the blood that he spilled. It's because he walked alone for you and for me. The last thing that we read quickly about Abraham, this is maybe the most important. Why? When God walked alone, God walked alone to create agents of his glory. God walked alone to create agents of his glory. We said, first off, that God walked alone so that we never have to walk alone. We said, secondly, God walked alone out of his grace and our merit. And then finally, God walked alone to create agents of his glory. And this is where it gets very specific to Abraham and his story. Remember the conversation between Abraham and God. Abraham has great success. He says... God, I know I had this great success, but you made some big promises. How do I know that you're going to answer those promises? And God says, I will enter a covenant with you. But in that covenant, it's not based on your performance. It's based on me. If you fail, I'll pay the price. That is the whole dialogue here. Abraham was talking about these great promises that God had given, these audacious promises to change the world, world world-changing promises, promises that today impact us, promises that today have value and have meaning. And God did all that. Why did God do that? Why did God pick Abraham and Abraham's people? Well, he does not hide why he did that. In a moment, we're gonna show a bunch of verses. We're not gonna take time to go through them all in detail. But God over and over tells us why he forgave Israel, why he forgave Abraham, why he delivered, why he raised people up, why he threw people down, why he saved you and why he saved me. It's all the same reason. Let's see our first passage. God called Israel, the Bible says, for his glory, for God's glory. Our verse says this. For as the girdle cleaveth to the loins of a man, so have I caused to cleave unto me the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah, saith the Lord, the next verse, that they might be unto me for a people and for a name and for a praise and for a glory, but they would not hear. God saying, let me tell you why I called Abraham. I did it for a glory to me. But can I tell you why God walked alone, why Jesus Christ died for you and died for me? It's to show his glory in this world. He wants this world to see what it means when God sends redemption to a man's heart, how it changes his life, it changes his family, and when God sends redemption to a woman's heart, how it changes everything about her, and see when this world is looking for hope that he is the great hope. Our next passage, God raised Pharaoh for his glory. This is great, Romans chapter 9. For the scriptures say unto Pharaoh, there are, there's scripture written to Pharaoh, Even for the same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Isn't that great? God's saying, Pharaoh, the reason I raised you up is because I want the world to know how powerful I am. You know, I hate to get political here, but if God can use Pharaoh for his glory, can God not use bad political leaders for his glory? Is there anything too hard for God? There is not. Let's see your next passage. God overthrew Pharaoh for his glory. God raised him up to show his glory. God said, I'm going to throw you down for my glory. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he shall follow after them. And I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon his host that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Our next one. God delivered Israel for his glory. We won't read the passage. We'll go to our next one, though. God protected Israel in the wilderness for his glory. Next one. God gave victory in Canaan for his glory. And that's the last one we'll look at. We could go on and on. God's saying, this promise I gave to you, Abraham, it's bigger than you. I want there to be a light in this world. That light that was shown most clearly through Jesus. We identify with Abraham because we could not keep that covenant with God any more than what Abraham could. We identify with Abraham because he walked God walked that path for us just like he did for Abraham. And we identify with Abraham because the reason God did all of it is so that the world can see his glory. That's why we're here as a church. Our church is not about building buildings. It's not about creating a great organization. It's not about letting people in our community know who we are. Can I tell you what it's about? It's about God being glorified in us. And when that's our goal, we will be successful. Because that's something we can't do on our own. Folks, we don't glorify God because we're good at it. We don't glorify God because we have organizational geniuses here. We don't glorify God because of our amazing resources. We don't glorify God because of our buildings. We don't glorify God because of our services. We glorify God because we're people who realize we have been delivered by Him. And we want His gospel to change every facet of our being. And that's the message our community and our world needs. The gospel. Christians need the gospel. God preached the gospel to believers because that is the mindset. That's the worldview that changes everything about us and makes us the light in this world. Please bow your heads. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me tell you, you have a God that loves you so much that He would die where you should have died and where I should have died. He would bleed instead of you. He would be rejected instead of you. He would pay the price instead of you. And today, He wants you to know Him as His Savior. And today, when we have a time of prayer in just a moment, this is what I want you to do. I want you to walk forward and shake a hand of a man up here. We'd love to share with you clearly the greatest news, the news that changes lives. God walked alone for you. And maybe you're here today and you're discouraged. and Boy, the devil's just had his way in your life. Maybe you have no hope and your marriage is frustrating you. Your home is falling apart, you feel, and you think that there's no answer. Let me tell you the answer. The gospel of Jesus Christ. If God can overcome our sin problem, He can overcome any problem we have. Maybe today needs to be the day you come, you take a knee, and you share your heart with Him. Let's stand and let's sing the invitation song. There is power.